Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books and Biography. I'm Olaine Eaton. In the fall of 1910, the young T.S. Eliot went to Paris. His plan was to return to Harvard after his year abroad and to pursue a doctorate in philosophy, which he would then go on to teach. It was a career his parents considered far more respectable than that of a poet. But Paris does funny things to people, and Eliot promptly fell in love with the city. He would later refer to that year as un présent parfait. Nancy Duval Hargrove's book, entitled T.S. Eliot's Parisian Year, recreates the Paris of 1910 and 11, as Eliot knew it, to explore the period's profound and lasting influence on his poetry and his life. Today, Nancy and I are going to be discussing T.S. Eliot's Parisian Year. Hi, Nancy. Thank you so much for joining us on New Books and Biography. I wonder if you could just start out by telling us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Um, I'm William L. Giles, English Professor Emerita of English at Mississippi State University, and I taught there for 38 years. My specialization was uh, T.S. Eliot, Sylvia Plath, 20th Century Poetry, and Southern Lit, and American Literature of the 1920s. And um, I published three books, uh, about 50 essays, um, on a variety of subjects, so the majority on Eliot or Plath. Um, I absolutely love teaching, and of course, I was your teacher in several courses um, quite a few years ago, but we won't say how many, and um, let's see, some of my honors and awards, I'll just mention a couple of them. Um, I have had five Fulbright Awards, and I've been to France twice, Belgium, uh, Sweden, and Austria, and I've won a couple of awards, probably the most uh, interesting is the Case Mississippi Professor of the Year Award. So that's a little bit about my background. Um, but I'm not all work and no play. I, I am married. I've been married 47 years this summer. I have two kids, five grandchildren, and my hobbies are tennis and traveling and living in Europe. So that's a little bit about me. Okay, right. we're here today to talk about your book, T.S. Eliot's Parisian Year. Um, if you could just start off telling us a little bit about what drew you to this subject in particular. Well, I've spent most of my life working on T.S. Eliot. He's my major um, interest academically. And um, when I finished my dissertation back in 1970, my dissertation director said to me, well, when you finish turning your dissertation into a book, that one was on landscape as symbol in Eliot's poetry, he said, you really need to do some research on Eliot's year in Paris. He lived there in 1910, 1911, and it was after his um, undergraduate education at Harvard, so he was a young man of 22 years old. So my professor, Ashley Brown, at the University of South Carolina said, you need to go to Paris because you have a lot of background in Paris from living there, and uh, you need to do some research and figure out what was going on in Paris and what he was likely to have seen. So 
that was such a wonderful idea. However, it took me about 20 years to get to it um, because in between then, I was teaching all the time. I did do the book on Elliot's landscape, and then I got interested in Sylvia Plath, and I did a book on Sylvia Plath. So in the early 90s, I thought, okay, well, now I'm going to start on this Elliot and Paris project a single paper for an international seminar in Sweden. And uh, after I did that, a lot of people at the conference said, oh, my gosh, <laughs> there's a lot of material here. Maybe you sh- should make it into a book. So um, that's what I ended up doing, and it took me quite a while. But it, it's really a fantastic subject, and it was the most interesting research project I had ever done. And the book really is um, a biography, but it's also literary criticism, and it also fits into the area of cultural study. So it really covers a a lot of ground. And I guess the other thing I want to say about it is that I did try very hard to recreate the Paris of 1910-1911 as Elliot would have experienced it with an emphasis on the cultural aspects. And I also wanted from the very beginning to include illustrations from the period in the book. And I do have 41 illustrations. I started out with 71, but my senior acquisitions editor told me I had to cut it to 41. (laughs) Well, actually, she told me 35, but I talked her into 41. So I think that's an important part of the book. Yeah, it really does assist in the points you make. Um, can you describe the research involved in writing the book and also the sources that were the most helpful? Okay. Well, as your um as you know, Elliot did not leave a lot of material and so I had to um rely on other sources besides his. He actually did write many, many letters during that period, but in uh 1929, after his mother's death, and 1947, after his brother's death, he retrieved his correspondence with them, and he burnt a good bit of it from the pre-Harvard years, the Harvard years, and the parish years. So there really were not a lot of primary documents, and um, of course, it is a big frustration of biography if you don't have those things, and there are just a few... um, a few documents that remain, and also he um, is mentioned in a couple of very interesting letters and articles, but pretty much that's it. So now to get to your question. The research, what I did was, um, as my dissertation director suggested, at the time, if you wanted to consult newspapers, um, you had to go to the city. So it was really sad. I had to go to Paris. So I went on sabbatical there for um, a semester. I'd been there a couple of other times, and I did a lot of work in the Bibliothèque Nationale, and this was in 1999, the year that it opened, the very new one. And so I just went there every day in the week and read uh, on microfilm in French, uh, mainly French newspapers, a lot of newspapers, um, journals, and that was a lot of fun, but it also was tedious. (laughs) But I discovered a lot of what was going on. Um, I also used um, Baedeker's um, Guide to Paris, Paris et ses environs, Paris and its environs, and I used books of photographs and uh, 
some journals, some French journals. So um, that's pretty much what I used. So my sources that were the most helpful were actually those newspapers. That's where I found out what was going on. So I was able to reconstruct the year in terms of mainly the cultural events, but I brought in a lot of other aspects of that year as well. So that's a long answer to your question. (laughs) Uh, What brought Elliot to Paris? Okay. Well, I explained that in the book, and probably the most important thing that got him to go to Paris was he wanted to find his poetic voice, and he was quite sure that he could find it in French poetry, and so he wanted to go to Paris and actually live there and become French uh, as much as he could. He, he just spent a year there, though, an academic year. So another reason that I think he wanted to go um, was to study with Henri Bergson, who is a very famous French philosopher at the time, extremely popular. And what I suggest in the book is that his parents, who are very serious and conservative, would have been totally unlikely to have allowed him to go if he said, I just want to search for my poetic voice. And so what I suggest is that he proposed to them, I want to go to Paris and study with Henri Bergson, and then I want to come back to Harvard and get my PhD in philosophy and become a professor of philosophy. And that would have been very acceptable to them, and that, in fact, is what they thought he was going to do. Um, Another reason he wanted to go was to improve his abilities with French. He studied French um, as an undergraduate and previously as well. And so you really need to be there. And he also wanted to get to know uh, French literature better than he did, though he certainly had studied that at Harvard as well. And I also proposed another um, idea, which this was really fourth in the line, I guess you'd say, and that is that he wanted to become a very sophisticated and cosmopolitan person. And um, Herbert Howarth, in a wonderful book on, on Eliot, says that Eliot already possessed to a certain degree, I'm quoting him here, the urbane dandyism, the perfection of dress, manners, and accomplishments, which was the Harvard style of his time and in which he excelled. That's what Howard said. But I suggest that he wanted to go to Paris to cultivate and develop these traits even further, and I think, in fact, he did that. So I don't think he would have told his parents that. (laughs) I think he would have told his parents, I want to go study with this famous philosopher, and I want to improve my French and my knowledge of French literature. So his mother, by the way, was very against the idea of his going to Paris. And here's here's another just a brief quote from a letter she wrote to him in March 1910, apparently in reply to a letter he'd written to his parents proposing this idea of going to Paris after he graduated. So she wrote him back and she said, and you can hear some tactics of discouragement she's trying here, I've rather hoped you would not specialize later on French literature. I suppose you will know better in June what you want to do next year. I cannot bear to think of your being alone in Paris. The very words give me a chill. Well, he wanted to go so badly that somehow he convinced his parents, who were two pretty formidable forces, 
to allow him to go, and they even, of course, financed it. But they really weren't totally thrilled by it, I think we should say. Mm -hmm. But he was pretty clever because somehow he did um, convince them that he needed to go. So he went. And he referred to this year as his boat in present parfait. What did he mean by this? Okay, um, that is just such a wonderful quote. He wrote an essay in 1944 for um, a magazine, a journal called La France Libre, and this, of course, was in the middle of World War II, towards the end of World War II. And he was asked to write an article, as were a number of other people, um, entitled What France Means to You. So in this essay, which he wrote in French, his French was that good, um, he had this wonderful quote, and here's what it says, but of course I'll give it to you in English. On the one hand, Paris was completely the past. On the other hand, it was completely the future, and these two aspects combined to form a present, a perfect present. And so that's what he meant, that Paris was a perfect present because it combined the past and the future. So that was such a wonderful quote. I used it for my epigraph, and I really wanted to call my book Un Présent Parfait, um, The Cultural Milieu of Paris in 1910-1911, but my uh, press said that was way too complicated and exotic, <laughs> and we needed a simpler, more direct title. So I said, okay. So they wanted T.S. Eliot's Parisian Year, and I thought that was fine. Mm-hmm. It's very direct and it's not frightening. <laughs> it doesn't make people think, oh my God, this is going to be too uh, esoteric. So, oh, I need to tell you one cool thing that the University Press of Florida, they are the ones who published this, um, the book designer chose to use um, on the cover and the title page and as the titles of all the chapters a script that was exactly like the script on the entrances to the Metropolitan, the Mekul, the subway in Paris. Very kind of ornate, uh, Art Deco. And I thought that was the coolest idea ever. It was not my idea, but when I saw it, I said, this is so perfect. That's fascinating. Anyway, sorry. No, I saw the, the cover and thought that the yep. script looked really familiar and had no idea yep. where it was from. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. And they used it all the way through for the chapter titles and everything. So, basically, um, he he said it was a perfect present. Not a gift present, but in terms of time, combining the past and the future, because there were a lot of experimental things going on to make a perfect present. And another reason I really um, love that quote is because this was a time when Elliot was still a young man, he was very optimistic, and I never thought so much about it until um, I read a review by Francis Dickey, a professor at the University of Missouri, and this review was published in the South Atlantic Review, and uh, in this, she said, this book shows the joie de vivre, the joy of life in Paris. And she said, it, this is Elliot when he was a young man with the sunshine all around him, thinking anything was possible. And it's just amazing that a reviewer can make you see something about your book that you hadn't specifically thought about before. And when I read that, I thought, oh my gosh, this 
this is true because later a lot of really bad and sad things happened to Elliot and he became a very um, sad in some ways person, always very intelligent. But So I, I thought when he was in Paris, the world was all before him. Where to choose? That's all. And of course, from Milton's Paradise Lost. But um, anyway, I thought, I thought it was pretty cool that um, this wonderful reviewer, who is a person I know, made me see the book in a way I hadn't really thought about before. So, yeah, this is going to be the like- Parfait had an even greater meaning than I knew. That's fascinating. This is the longest question ever. Um, but, okay, you've got a quote early on where Elliot says, quote, and it's a letter to someone, I think, um, the kind of poetry that, that I needed to teach me the use of my own voice did not exist in English at all. It was only to be found in French. Um, so was he really contemplating writing exclusively in French? And um, What he really meant by that um, was, uh, and it's from that same, uh, well, from another essay, but he has another comment on it in that essay, What France Means to You. This is actually from an essay he wrote on W.B. Yeats. Mm-hmm. And basically what he was saying was that English writers at the time were still writing in a very traditional, conventional way, that he discovered the French symbolists in 1908 at Harvard. And um, he was very inspired by them because they were very contemporary. They were doing a lot more exciting things. And so he just felt that France and French poetry was where he could find his own voice. And in fact, that became the truth. Now, he did say also in another essay, at one time he thought maybe he would live in Paris and try to scrape along and and write in French. But when he said he was trying to find his voice, he, he just meant in English. He wanted to bring to poetry in English what those French symbolist poets had brought to poetry in French. So, that was a really, really interesting comment that he made. Um, but he he did not really think about writing exclusively in French. And and then when he tried it, I mean, you know, you really there are few authors who've written in a language not their native language, like Joseph Conrad, who is not a native English speaker. Um, but it's very, very hard. Of course, Eliot did write a number of poems in French. Early, early in his career, and uh, so he did write in French. But he, he was really trying to find how he could speak as a poet, and he thought he could do that in French. So he went. So during his year there, he had two dear friends who were an enormous influence on him. Can you tell us a bit about them? Okay. Well, these two young men. Um, one was uh, named Alain Fournier. And he was a journalist. Um, he was a young man about Elliot's age. Um, and he actually was engaged by Elliot. And I have not been able to find out how, how that happened. And I'm not sure anyone knows. But anyway, he, um, hired him as someone who would give him, um, lessons in conversational French and also help him with, um, French literature. And, so I just um, wanted to read one one thing that um, 
was said in E.J.H. Green's book. He says that Elliot had the inestimable, inestimable good luck to have Alain Fournier as his tutor and friend, and I think that is so true. Alain Fournier was very talented. He um, was a novelist as well. He was writing a novel, and he was a reviewer of literature and various types of the arts for a number of journals and magazines and newspapers in um, in Paris. So he, he was just a wonderful friend. And his other friend was um, named Jean Vernal. And Vernal was a fellow lodger in his boarding house. And both of these young men were perfect friends for him. They were very sensitive. They were very interested in, in the arts. They were very um, intelligent, they were highly educated, and they were just perfect friends for him. And um, the saddest thing is that both of them were killed in the first year of World War One, only seven months apart, and that was a source of great grief to Elliot. This is one of the things that, you know, brought him into the harsh realities of the real world, the world um, that he was going to have to live in. I mean, I don't think today we have, we can even imagine the devastation of World War One. Although there's been a couple of movies lately, and um, a wonderful PBS uh, two-part series called uh, Oh, it was just on last Sunday. I've forgotten the name of it. I'll have to look it up. It was great. It showed devastating scenes from World War One, and that movie War Horse, which came out earlier, has very powerful scenes of World War One, so we can see how terrible it was. Very devastating. But so those were the two main guys uh, that he became friends with. And the friendship with Alan Fournier exposed Elliot to a number of important literary works. What was he reading during that year in Paris? Okay, well they would meet and they would work on their French, on his, on Elliot's French. And by the way, I'll mention this. By the end of the year, Elliot wrote a letter to Alain Fournier, of course, in French. Uh, that one letter has survived. And um, apparently, Alain Fournier had told him, well, you, you don't need my help anymore because your French is very good. But his French wasn't very good at the beginning. <laughs> so they did that. But Probably even more important was um, that Alain Fournier would give him pieces of literature to read by current um, writers. And so Elliot learned an amazing amount about what was being produced, you know, really right then, right then and there. Um, the most important influence was probably Charles-Louis Philippe, um, who wrote a novel that really influenced Elliot called Boubou de Montparnasse which was pretty daring in its subject matter. He wrote about the world of pimps and prostitutes in pretty seedy areas of Paris. Totally shocking subject matter. And uh, Alain Fournier did not like the book at first, but then he got to like it. And his brother-in-law, who was also um, an art critic, wrote him a letter in April of 1911. And in it, he commented that Philippe Courage in presenting the lives of such people was amazing. And he said, we would never have had the courage to treat this subject if we had even thought of it. And I think that's really revealing. Now, had died the year before Elliot came, so he was still 
you know, pretty contemporary. The other people they read um, were Andre Gide, a novelist and pretty wide-ranging writer, and Paul Claudel, who was a poet and a playwright, um, Saint-Jean-Père, who was a very experimental poet. And then they also read Dostoyevsky's three main novels, Crime and Punishment, The Idiot, and The Brothers Karamatov, in French translation. And Elliot um, later said that he was very influenced by those three novels of Dostoyevsky that he read in 1910, 1911. I'll just quote from a comment he made. He said, um, under Alain Fournier's instigation, I read those three novels in the French translation during the course of that winter. They made a very profound impression on me, and I had read them all before Prufrock was completed. So it had an influence on the first great poem that he wrote, and he wrote it that very year. So pretty amazing. So those are just some of the people they they read and discussed. They would read these works and discuss them. So that was an eye-opener, really, for Elliot. So to kind of set the stage, can you give us a brief overview of what daily life was like in Paris during the time Elliot was there? All right. This is your most challenging question, in a way, (laughs) because this covers an entire chapter in my book. It's the second chapter because I wanted to give readers an idea not just of the cultural atmosphere and the cultural activities in Paris, but what daily life was like. Um, so probably the most important thing to say immediately is that Paris not only was kind of the center of the artistic and literary uh, world at that time, but it was also very advanced for the time, and they prided themselves on their technological advances. And I'll just mention a couple of things. This was one of my favorite chapters. I love doing the research and finding out all these pieces of information. I didn't know any of this, maybe a few things before I started. Um, Of course, the Eiffel Tower, which was built at the end of the 19th century, was very, very um, important technologically. It was the tallest structure, and I can even tell you exactly how tall it was. it had a height of 300 meters, and at the time, it was the tallest metal structure in the world, and it had a modernistic design, electric light, and elevators, so that was very, very cutting edge. So that's a building everybody knows about, but we're so used to it, we don't really realize that it was a technological marvel. And of course, Elliot came there 21 years after it had been built, but it was still this marvel. And today, of course, we all love the Eiffel Tower, except that I won't go on the top. It's too scary. Um, okay, so let's get into the city, and I'll talk a little bit about transportation because it's so fascinating. On the streets, there's this incredible mixture of old and new modes of transportation. There were automobiles, both open and closed. That means like convertibles, but with a roof. And, of course, with a roof was more expensive. And some of these automobiles were even driven by women, emancipated women, in beehive veils to keep out the dust. Um, and that information I found in uh, Alistair Horn's The Seven Ages of Paris, which is a great book. Um, and in a lot of the ads, they showed women. And my favorite ad was an ad in which... Um, a woman is driving the car, but sitting next to her 
is what appears to be a uniformed chauffeur. And I guess that was in case she had to stop driving and the chauffeur could take over. But anyway, that was a really cool ad for for cars. Um, and also, um, at the same time that these automobiles were on the street, which were, of course, brand new, um, horse-drawn carriages and buses were there. Trams, there were already a 100 lines of trams. And bicycles. Bicycles were kind of the new thing, all the rage, because they were inexpensive and they gave people independence and freedom, and especially women. There's some interesting um, ads for bicycles. One shows a woman on a bicycle leaving uh, a groom at the altar because now she's independent. (laughs) So she just goes off on her own. Um, Below the street, was the Metropolitan, which is the Metro, the um, subway, which in 1910 already had six lines, so that was the daring kind of advance. Um, overhead were airplanes, and most of us think, what, airplanes? 1910, yes. They were a daring feat of technology. At the time Elliot was in Paris, they were mainly used for sport. And they had all these flying competitions. And in the book, I have a wonderful um, illustration. It's from a postcard of that time period showing um, an airplane flying over a street near Elliot's uh, pension where he lived. And I thought that was so amazing. Um, And they had these airplane races all the time. They were feats of skill. And then right at the end of the period when Elliot was there, um, people began to see that they could maybe be used for commercial enterprises. So that was transportation. So it was very, very um, advanced. Um, electricity was not in most homes, but street lamps were electric, and um, electricity was used in some entertainment venues. And when Elliot arrived there in uh, 1910, October of 1910, there were these articles in the newspaper about amazing maison électrique, an electric house, and you could pay money and go to see this great advance of electric house. So I thought that was very interesting. I, I loved doing this research. Okay, just a couple more things. You can tell I really like this part. Um, in sanitation, um, Paris was known for its very advanced sewer system, which we don't even think about. Uh, and one thing I found really fascinating in that area of sanitation was until the 1870s, people could throw their garbage out the windows. But starting in the 1870s and um, up through the 1910s, 1911s, they had a very regular and regulated garbage collection, so they didn't have the smells that they would have had earlier. That, to me, was interesting. And two other things I mentioned um, were clothing. Paris, of course, was a fashion capital, um, the center of haute couture, even in 1910-1911, and there were totally new fashions. Um, previously, right before 1910, women wore corsets, and there were bustles and padded hips, and Flowing dresses made of heavy materials like satin and brocade. Well, thanks to a wonderful inventive designer, Paul Placho, um, when Elliot got there, the fashion was for women. Straight lines, empire waist, and hems that stopped at the top of dresses, although they kept their big hats. 
but the most daring fashion trend when Elliot was there was the culotte, the divided skirt. It was all the rage, and there were some wonderful cartoons. And Elliot even wrote um, in one of his few communications that survived that he has not seen them on the street. Here's what he actually says. I have not seen this costume on the street, and I don't think it will be a success. <laughs> it was considered too daring for, uh, you know, most women. But there's this wonderful cartoon. I'll have to tell you about it. It's in the book. And um, in this cartoon, there's an older woman, a hefty older woman, in um designer's uh, shop with several young models in culottes. And she's asking the designer, in translation, of course, do you really think so? A divided skirt for a married woman? To which he responds, but of course, madame, I dare even say, especially for a married woman. <laughs> Today, wearing culottes is more than elegant. It's the height of fashion. So um, we do know that Elliot was aware of this fashion fad, and I just thought that was incredibly interesting. And then one other thing is sports were very important um, in Paris at this time, um, horse racing being the most popular, but also there was boxing. And Elliot, interestingly, when he returned to Boston in the fall of 1911, took boxing lessons. Um, bicycling was a sport. Automobiling was a sport. And these were all in the newspaper under sporting life. Aviation was the most exciting, of course, and kind of the newest. So whew, that's a quick run through of... <laughs> Daily Life in Paris. It's a great chapter. It's really fun to read. Yeah. Um, one of my reviewers said that was her favorite chapter. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, so the second half of the book is divided into the different genres of art and entertainment and the developments occurring in each during Eliot's Parisian year. I'd like us to try to run through them. I don't know that we'll get to them all, but if we could just run through them and if you could hit one or two of the highlights in each field and illustrate their connection to the later poetry. Okay. So the first one is theater. All right. Um, in theater, probably the single most um, impressive event was this multimedia um, production called The Martyrdom of St. Sebastian. And it featured um, collaboration of artists from various fields. And Elliot surely was influenced by this. It was everywhere. It was considered scandalous and daring. And... Um, one of the most shocking things about it was that um, a, um, a Russian ballerina, Ida Rubinstein, who is very sensual, played the role of St. Sebastian, so a gender reversal, which was incredibly shocking at the time. So Elliot saw from that, you could write um, a play in verse, um, but he also saw some pitfalls to avoid, so um, it influenced him. There was also a play... Um, that was uh, an adaptation of the brothers Karamazov. It was very, very famous and popular at the time, and we know Elliot went to that because he wrote and said he went to that, one of the few things we know for a fact. Um, and the other one was a wonderful um, controversy over the famous French playwright Racine, a young French playwright named Fauchois, went to a production of one of Racine's plays, um, and he actually criticized Racine, and this caused a riot, actually. And 
Eliot had to have been astounded that something literary <laughs> caused a riot in 1910. So it was in all the papers. So those are exciting things in the field of theater, I think. How about the visual arts? Okay, the visual arts. This is one of my favorite chapters to write. Um, it won uh, an essay award, the, like the best essay of, I think it was 2006, in the South Atlantic Review. Um, I loved writing this. Um, probably the two things I would mention is that Elliot was certainly very influenced by classic works of the past, and one example is Da Vinci's Madonna of the Rock in the Louvre. And in uh, the Wasteland and the fortune-telling scene, he referred to the Lady of Rocks. And obviously he saw that. And as I was writing this, I learned something I did not know beforehand, that there are two versions of the Lady of, of the Madonna of the Rocks. Da Vinci painted the first one, and he painted it for a confraternity. And they were not happy with it because it wasn't religious enough for them. And so they told him he had to do another one. And so the original is in the Louvre, and the second version is in the National Gallery in uh, London. That that was an interesting thing I discovered. Um, but more important, I think, than the classic works of art were all the daring new art movements, especially Cubism. And um, the first exhibition of the Cubists happened in the spring of 1911. And it was in all the papers and... Elliot's um, friend, Alain Fournier, actually went to a pre-opening party, and certainly he probably took Elliot back, and maybe Elliot and Bernal, and so there was a huge influence of the Cubists on Elliot. Showed up almost immediately in the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock, shows up 10 years later when he's writing The Wasteland. He uses a lot of Cubist techniques and themes. So that was really important in the field of art. If Eliot had not been in Paris that year, his poetry would have been very different, I'm convinced. How about the field of dance? Okay, the field of dance. An early editor of my manuscript said this was his favorite chapter. <laughs> That's one thing I love about this book. Everybody has a different favorite chapter. And I'll tell you my absolute favorite at the end. Okay, in dance, there were two things I talked about a lot. One was the performances of Isadora Duncan in January 1911. Um, she was a scandalous American dancer who was totally into breaking all the rules of um, ballet. She danced with bare feet and transparent costumes, and she danced to classical pieces of music. And so what Elliot could have learned from her, I'm quite sure he went there, um, was that you can break the rules. You don't have to fit into the conventions. She, of course, was in dance, but he could have said, oh, I can do this in poetry. Um, and even more flamboyant, I think, was the um, performances of, of the Ballet Russe, um, the Russian ballet. And they did their third season in Paris in June of 1911. So everything happened while Elliot was there. They were so important because they were experimental. They were interdisciplinary. Um, Diaghilev, who was the director, would hire the greatest artists, the greatest musicians, the greatest um, dancers for his productions. And he hired young people who were just becoming, you know, famous. Um, Stravinsky, for example. Well, the greatest in ballet that season was called Petrushka. 
which um, I'm convinced Petrushka, who is um, a puppet in a street fair in Russia, was a big influence on Elliot's creation of Proof Rock. So there you have dance. You also talked about Nijinsky in the book, which I thought um, was really interesting about how he changed, this is kind of a side note, but how he changed for ballet and brought the the male dancer back to the forefront instead of just exactly. someone, a carrier, a conveyor yep. of ballerinas. He was the hottest thing going in dance. And Nijinsky danced the role of Petrushka, and he said it was his favorite role of all the roles he danced. Um, the sad thing about Nijinsky was he developed serious psychological problems a few years later, and he basically left the world of dance. But he was very experimental, and um, he, he was just a very important force. Again, what Elliot's doing in Paris in every field of the art is experimentation, throwing out the old rules, trying something modern, trying something different, or at least merging the new and the old. And so Nijinsky was... Um, one of the people who did that, Diaghilev, Stravinsky, and Elliot saw all this. I mean, if he didn't see it, he read about it, and everyone in Paris was talking about it. It was in all the papers. and So I'm convinced he went to all these things, but of course I can't absolutely prove many of them. Mm-hmm. How about the field of opera? Okay, opera. Am I going fast enough for oh, you? You're doing great. <laughs> We're covering a lot. Of material. I think we're going to make okay. it through. Yes, I think. The coolest thing about um, opera was that one of Elliot's favorite composers um, before he even got to Paris was uh, Richard Wagner. And when he got to Paris, literally as he got there, in October and November 1910, Tristan and Isolde was playing. And Elliot had seen it in 1909 in Boston but I'm convinced he went again to see it in Paris. And, of course, he, he uses Tristan and Isolde, uses wine from the opera in the scene with the Hyacinth Girl in the Wasteland. Um, I'm, I like to speculate or imagine that he went to see a, a performance of that with his two new French friends, um, probably in November, because he just got there in October. But he may have gone alone, or he may have just read about it. Um, but it was Again, all the rage in Paris. Even more wonderful for him was when he discovered in the spring of 1911 that the entire Ring of the Nibelungen would be presented in its entirety twice for the first time ever in Paris in June 1911. Okay, uh, I cannot prove it, but he had to have gone. And I'm pretty sure he went with Vergnal because Vergnal wrote in several letters a commentary about Wagner and both Tristan and Isolde and the Ring of the Nibelungen. And in the Wasteland, Elliot uses the refrain of the Rhine Daughters from the Ring of the Nibelungen. Um, he uses it in the third section of the Wasteland. And I also think that the um, reference to the fires in the wasteland, probably come from the conflagration of Valhalla at the end of that wonderful uh, tetralogy. Okay. okay. Want to go to music hall yeah, now? Or music. concert? No, not, not music hall, concert hall. Music, music of, the, of concert the concert hall. hall. Okay. Um, and again, here he could see those contemporary young artists, and Paris really supported its young artists. Just It must have been so inspiring for Elliot. 
as an American because in America at that time and maybe not as much today, but there was not the support for young aspiring artists. And I'm using artists in the broad sense of all kinds of the arts. But anyway, the most important young um, composers at the time were Stravinsky, Ravel, and Debussy. And they were very much appreciated, and their work was constantly played. However, the composer whose works were most often played during Eliot's time in Paris was Beethoven. And Beethoven was actually worshipped by the Parisians. I discovered this after I started the book. Um, to the French, he was an ideal of moral virtue and fortitude. And I think Eliot was just imbued with that attitude of the French toward Beethoven for the rest of his life. Eliot was highly influenced by Beethoven. Um, he had his favorite string quartet, and he even had, um, at his funeral, he had asked that um, the second movement of Beethoven's Seventh Symphony be played at his funeral, so it also greatly influenced four quartets. And the most exciting thing, um, what I said in my book, was the crown of the Beethoven um, musical performances that year was in May of 1911, a Beethoven festival, where they played many, many, many of Beethoven's works. So, popular entertainment? <laughs> okay, this was my favorite chapter. <laughs> this is my favorite thing to write. Um I started writing this, and I had no idea what I was going to find because it was such an enormous deal. Um, when you don't have radio, when you don't have TV, when you have live, popular entertainment, and this was something that Elliot had already um, liked. He thought popular entertainment was wonderful. He was interested before he went there in American vaudeville and minstrel shows, so he was already as uh, Ron Schuhart, an Elliott scholar, told us, in, in uh, vaudeville and music hall and minstrel shows when he arrived in Paris. But nobody ever wrote about popular entertainment in Paris. And so I thought, you know what, I need to write about this because it's, it's so important. And probably the two or three most important types of popular entertainment, there were eight of them that I that I wrote about in the book, but um, probably the most important were the Café Concert, and Café Concert was um, a café in which there were rounds of songs sung by various singers, and then as time passed, they added other acts, and so you could go to a Café Concert, and you could um, drink and smoke, you could move around, but the most Exciting thing, certainly to Elliot, was that the audience participated. The singer would sing the first verse of the song, and then in many places they had sheets with refrains printed on them that you could buy for you know, a very small amount of money. And the singer would say, sing with me, repeat with me. So the singer would sing a verse, and when he or she got to the refrain, the whole audience would sing it. And Elliot always said that that was so important to have audience participation. He wrote a wonderful essay on Marie Lloyd, um, a British music hall singer, and he made that point in there, that that's what he thought was important, especially for theater. 
Okay. And the other one um, that I'll talk about, although I'd love to talk about even more, but I think my time might be running out, um, were the music halls. Um, but some of the other ones were um, dance halls, cinema. Cinema started. It started at that time. It was actually created by two French brothers. Their names were the brothers Lumière, and Lumière in French means light, which is kind of interesting, very appropriate. Um, there was also, of course, circuses. There were fairs um, and a thing called uh, Cabaret Artistique, which was a cabaret where you had people doing very satirical skits and things like that. So the one thing I want to mention before I leave popular entertainment is that um, Elliot at street fairs surely saw what was the most popular um, element of street fairs at the time. There were many of these in Paris, and that was the um, beheading of a figure, and it was typically St. John. St. John was... Uh, often used for this, and there's a wonderful book by Nancy Perloff in which she talks about this decapitation act and how popular it was in the street fair at the time. So what I think Elliot did was he must have seen one of these, and he combined it with um, some paintings that he could have seen in the Louvre of the um, beheading of St. John the Baptist, and he used that to create a couple of lines in the love song of Jail for Prufrock, where Prufrock compares himself to St. John and his head being cut off. So that was, I think, one of the earliest examples of combining low art or lowbrow art with high art. But popular entertainment was really, really popular. Um, speaking of the low and the high art, you have a quote that I want to be sure to mention because it yep. really goes against our image of how Straight Lace, I mean, his middle, his middle name was Stearns, so it, he just seems so stern and, and kind of frightening sometimes. But in this letter to Ezra Pound, he wrote, quote, if the audience gets a striptease, it will swallow the poetry. So this love of combining high art with low art was really something that originated during his year in Paris, right? Well, yes and no. Um and let me just back up a little bit. Elliot was really a much more complex person than than we think, and we do tend to think of him as being very stern, right. as, his, as his name suggests, and straight-laced. But he did love all kinds of um, elements of popular culture. He loved jokes, and he loved music hall. He knew all these music hall songs, and he would even sing them when he was very old. Um, not that he lived that long, but, you know, when he was an older man and, and when he was very ill, and he would even sing them when they were trying to shave him. And so he, he had this other side mm-hmm. where he, he really enjoyed fun, and he really enjoyed um, lowbrow art. And I do think that being in Paris made him see through something such as... Um, the Ballet Russe, which um, did a number of things that involved ordinary culture, like a like a street fair, um, he saw that you could combine those those two and create something really really original. So, um, you know, I would love to say, oh yes, all all of that came from Paris, 
I think he already had the um, material for it, but I think Paris made him think about combining them. Mm-hmm. And in um, Proof Rock, which he wrote, he started it in Paris. He finished it in Munich, where he went um, briefly in the summer of 1911, when he had time to kind of think about everything he had seen that year. He's only 22 years old now. That's the hardest thing to believe. He, at that point, thought of combining, in particular, um, this street fair um, kind of act, uh, the Decapitation Act, with these great works of art in the Louvre of the beheading of um, St. John for that pretty striking metaphor in uh, Proof Rock. So, I don't know. Also, in that quote, um, he wrote that quote in an essay and published in 1938. He was actually talking to Ezra Pound about first drama. He wanted to revitalize, bring back poetic drama. And so what he was saying was, we can get away with it or I can get away with it. Because Pound wasn't interested in writing that kind of verse drama. So we can, we can do it in the 20th century if we can use some music hall techniques. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that was kind of his idea. If you can keep the audience entertained kind of on the surface level, you can sneak in a lot of poetry. Mm-hmm. So that's pretty much what he meant by that. I realize we're talking about a whole book on this subject, but if you had to boil it down, what is the biggest legacy of this Parisian year on both Eliot's life and on its poetry? Uh, I said your other question was the hardest, but this one really, really, really is the hardest one to answer because it's so complex. And in in my book, I, I said that it's both a monumental and elusive task to try to capture the complexity of Eliot's Parisian year. So I'm not going to weasel out of this. I just want to, that's a caveat. Um, because his legacy, I mean, legacy of that year in Paris itself is very multifaceted and very, very complex. But I will tell you a couple of things I think. Um, in terms of his poetic work and his um, drama, and also his essays. I think what he learned that year in Paris, or what he saw, and then thought he could apply to his own work, um, freedom, the freedom to experiment, to try new things. He also saw um, how you could combine disciplines, art and music and literature. Of course, he didn't combine dance, but everywhere he looked, he saw these interdisciplinary um, cultural events. Or activities, and he also saw this international mixing of um, artists and artistic mediums. So I think if I had to pick four things, I would pick those four things. Mm-hmm. And we can see um, all of those in the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock just right away that very year. I mean, before he left Europe to go back to the United States in September 1911. He had finished the last song of J. Alfred Prufrock. So it was definitely inspired by his year in Paris. Um, but maybe even more so the Wasteland, which was uh, a few years down the road, about 10 years or a little bit more down the road. Um, everything he had seen and experienced, I think, went into that poem as well. 
And as for his life, well, he was a lifelong francophile. He loved France for the rest of his life. Um, he especially loved Paris, and he went back whenever he could. It's really surprising to me that he settled in London instead of Paris, but I think it was just a happenstance and circumstance that he ended up in, in London. And there were a lot of reasons to stay in London. Um, but whenever he went back to Paris or just back to France, he loved several regions of France, like the Dordogne. He, that was one of his favorite parts. He said he was revitalized and rejuvenated, and he came back to England with you know, a kind of more uh, excited attitude towards everything. He also had a lot of French friends. He had this knowledge of French language and literature and culture, and he used that throughout his life, especially when he was editor of the Criterion. Later in his life, he would call on his um, French literary counterparts to write articles for his magazine, and he was always always very, very um, pro-France, even though he didn't totally agree with everything. He, he simply had that gift. And I really think that um, I really can identify with that because um, I went to France in 1963 as a Fulbright, and it has affected my entire life, ending with this book. So... I don't know, I can kind of uh, associate with him and I have uh, similar feelings about France and especially about Paris, where I was for three weeks this last summer. <laughs> so that was, that was great. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for talking with us today about T.S. Eliot's Parisian Year. Do you have any other books on the horizon? Well, I do have um, a new interest <laughs> that I'm working on. I don't know if it will turn into a book. It's, uh, it's already an essay. Um, I discovered a year and a half ago a little journal of Eliot's in the Houghton Library at Harvard. Um, and it was about his, where he went on his trip to Italy. That he went, he went there after he left Paris in 1911. And, um, it was just fascinating to, to read where he had been. And so, um, I taught my husband into going with me last year before we went to Paris. <laughs> we spent two weeks just following in Elliot's footsteps, and that was so incredibly exciting to me. And fortunately, I have a good-natured husband who drove me around and only grumbled when he couldn't find a parking place, which was often. Um, so that's going to be uh, an essay that's coming out in the fall. And um, so that. That's something kind of exciting. I don't know if, I don't think that will turn into a book, but I, I may do something on Elliot Abroad or Elliot's various um, visits to different countries, and but I don't specifically have that in mind. Mm-hmm. I'm not so sure. Um, so this has been a lot of fun. I've enjoyed talking about the book. It, it really was the most fascinating and exciting um, research I've done in my entire career, which has quite, been quite long now. So, um, and Elliot is endlessly fascinating. I mean, you think you've thought of everything and you haven't. Or you think you've discovered everything and who knew I was going to discover this journal. My book was already in press and so it was too late. So, uh, I'm, if I could go back and 
add anything, I would, <laughs> I would add that. And um, there's a wonderful scholar in Italy uh, who's doing some, who has done and is still doing some work on uh, Jean Verdinal, and that's going to come out in an essay in the fall as well. So um, there's still plenty of things to discover about Elliot. Yeah, no matter how much you think you found out, there's still a little bit more. I've been talking today with Nancy Duvall Hargrove about her book, T.S. Eliot's Parisian Year, which is now available in paperback. I'm Olai Neaton. This is New Books and Biography. Thanks for listening.